Welcome to Reactionary Minds, a project of the Unpopulist. I'm Aaron Ross Powell. We're recording this on the afternoon of Wednesday, November 9th. Yesterday was election day, and the results were rather unexpected, especially in light of the dominant narrative these last several weeks of a nigh-inevitable red wave. To talk about the electoral outcomes, what we should make of them, and what they mean looking ahead, I'm joined by Andy Craig, Director of Election Policy at the Rainey Center and Adjunct Scholar at the Cato Institute, and Sheikha Damia, Editor of The Unpopulist and Fellow at the Mercatus Center's Program on Pluralism and Civil Exchange. What did we witness last night? Democracy in action. (laughs) Um, I mean, it was certainly... uh, uh, beats expectations kind of night for the Democrats. Um, we don't know yet for sure who actually won each chamber, but it was not the kind of Republican blowout. It was definitely an underperformance for the party uh, out of power during a midterm. Um, so, I mean, I think most indications are this is probably the best uh, an incumbent president's party has done in a midterm since uh, 2002, which was right after 9-11 and that whole bump. Yeah, I would say, uh, you know, good sense of the American people uh, in whom I had been uh, losing faith a little bit, I have to admit. Um, You know, after I saw uh, the cult of a a prime minister in India, didn't think it could happen in America, and then Trump got elected and seemed sort of invincible. And uh, here we, and then he lost last time, but that didn't seem to stop his momentum. And it was sort of, I was beginning to despair that there was just nothing that could quell him and his, you know, the forces of Magaism that he's unleashed. And uh, lo and behold, the American people delivered this time. So, you know, I'm just happy my faith in the American good sense has been renewed for now. That was my, I think at about nine o'clock or 10 o'clock my time last night, I tweeted out that this is the most optimistic I have felt in a long time. And and I admit that going into this, especially with the, the narratives that we had heard about the Republican, about a red wave and so on over the last few weeks that I think we should we should talk about too, like the way that the media handled reporting on all of this. But with that, I was... I was prepared for a pretty miserable Wednesday morning. And I want to say, like, I I'm not I am not a fan of Democrats in general and their policies. Like Democrats getting into office, they will try to do all sorts of bad and harmful policies that will make us worse off in all sorts of ways. But as I had remarked several times in the lead up to this, it really did feel like Democracy was on the ballot to some extent. Like, given the number of people in the GOP who had been clear that they rejected the notion of free and fair elections, unless they, of course, were the winners of them, um, the the number of particularly local candidates and gubernatorial candidates who had said, you know, I wouldn't have certified the results in 2020, like those were real threats. And it felt to me like this was at least a sign that maybe we are headed back in the direction of what PJ Rourke called like wrong within normal parameters. But I want to ask you, Andy, specifically about 
there were a lot of worries going into this about essentially election malfeasance or at least election denialism, both in terms of what might happen in the vote counting and so on, but also the people who might get elected or put into the power to do something about it the next time around. How did that play out? Well, for the most part, uh, I mean, not only was it overall a disappointing night for Republicans, um, but in particular, the ones who were the main uh, objects of concern about that sort of thing, the candidates for governor and secretary of state who uh, threatened to not certify the presidential election results next time, uh, they appear to have mostly lost. Uh, It doesn't look like We're still waiting on Arizona to be called, but it doesn't look like Carrie Lake won in Arizona. Uh, Doug Mastriano lost in Pennsylvania. Uh, Tudor Dixon lost in Michigan. Um, And then on the flip side of it, uh, in Georgia, I mean, I think a a little bit of credit where credit is due here for some good Republicans on this front. Uh, The fact that uh, Kemp and uh, Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State there, both survived their primaries and then both won the general election pretty handily um, in a year when it looks like they probably lost the Senate race there. Um, so the the one that's probably still the, the most concerning to watch out for is the Nevada Secretary of State race. Um, and that one, that's one where the Republican is a, a pretty kooky election denier type and he is currently ahead, but there's a lot of mail-in votes still to count. Um, so that's still too early to call. Um, but that looks, I mean, out of all these, you know, dozen or so governor and secretary of state races nationwide, um, there's very few uh, where where somebody like that appears to have won. Yeah, no, I agree. The, you know, the election denying was a big concern of mine. And um what was hardening was that at least the people who were who had made that their signature issue or in some ways a high profile issue are either have either lost or are you know going to lose um Arizona being the exception perhaps we have to wait and see but i'm not sure on the whole election denying really hurt the candidates i actually have some numbers here from the washington post uh, which said that you know there were 291 election deniers that it had identified and as a Wednesday morning, 165 of them had actually won or were projecting or were being projected to be won. And in the House itself, there are 143 Republicans who are deniers who've actually won. So very broadly, I mean, it seems like voters will overlook, uh, you know, sort of a certain level of kukri. So, so long as it's not your main thing, so long as it's part of some other agenda. So, uh, which is less than ideal. I mean, I wish they were a little bit more attentive to, you know, the question of uh, procedural fairness than they have been. But I guess at this stage, I'll take whatever whatever I can get. Let me ask two possible ways that we might interpret what Andy said and then what you just said, Shika, and and square them. Um, So one is, you mentioned like a lot of House seats are won by people who have been election deniers. Andy talked about gubernatorial races and then also it looks like some Senate races and then some Secretary of State and other things. And those are all statewide elections. 
versus the the district by district of the house seats is that is that a distinguishing feature here that that the districts can be have a i guess a stronger partisan lean and be more either forgiving of kookery on their partisan side or have bought more into it than you're likely to find at the state or one would hope eventually the national level. That's definitely right that these uh, House districts are much less competitive in the general election. In the vast majority of House districts, the major party nominee for whichever party is going to win. So that includes in the House the uh, hundred and something incumbents who voted against uh, certifying last time and several new people who've come in. Um, you know, that is still definitely a minority of the House. Even if Republicans take the House majority, it's going to be very narrow. So there's clearly not going to be a majority in either chamber willing to do the kind of objection to the electoral count that was happening last time. There might still be 150 or even 200 of them, um, but it's not going to be. So in terms of kind of like the procedure of walking through a next potential crisis, um, I, that, that's, it's not good that there are that many of them, but it's not to the point where they're like in power to do something. And likewise, the governor races and the secretary of state races, there was a particular concern over those as a choke point, where if you have the governor refusing to certify, it can cause a whole lot of problems, some of which will be addressed by the Electoral Count Act reform. Um, but it's certainly it's certainly true in general that just the statewide races are more competitive. There's more of those where it's a, a genuine toss-up on which party can win, uh, whereas our system of single-member districts for House is, uh, aside from election denialism and all this sort of thing, just in general, it's a terribly uncompetitive system, and the vast majority of races are decided in the primary. Right. And no, I agree. Um, you know, at least in those races where the election deniers could make real mischief, you know, gubernatorial or uh, secretary of states, the outcome has been good. And I wish, you know, I, you know, I wish I could give the American people credit for having this much acuity and prioritizing, you know, sort of uh, fair and uh, free and fair elections over other issues. And maybe that's the explanation for it, that the voters are making a distinction, you know, among races where there's some real damage to be done versus house races where there is some potential damage, but not a whole lot. And they were making that distinction. But I don't know, we'll see. I mean, I agree. I mean, I, I will, I will, like I said, I'll take what I can get right now. And this is a good outcome. Uh, yes, the House members who've been elected are not going to prioritize this issue going forward, given that there isn't going to be this energy coming from the top, encouraging them to be election deniers. So even though their record is not great, hopefully they will, you know, they will calm down on this issue. A lot of this conversation is part of the time-honored tradition of immediately after election narrative construction. Right where you go, you, you get a set of results which are just binaries. These this person won or this person lost, and you try to construct these elaborate explanations for it that are always tied into. I mean, every every advocacy group is always it was our issue that was the thing that did it, you know. And I'm hearing a lot of these. So there's we've talked about the election, the role that election denial plays, and one possible narrative of that is that uh, the American voters were rejected people who, maybe just at the statewide office, but rejected people who they saw as threats to democracy. 
It could also be that the, generally speaking, hardcore election denial and conspiracy stuff goes along with just being kind of crazy and not a very good candidate as well. And so it wasn't specifically the election stuff they were rejecting. It was just the Herschel Walker seemed wildly unfit for office, like regard, regardless of his actual beliefs even, you know. Um, but but there are other factors too. Like one of the big ones was the Dobbs decision and abortion because we saw in I think every instance where abortion rights were on the ballot that the voters chose to maintain or not destroy or make more robust rights to choosing whether to continue a pregnancy. So on that one, what role do we think that specifically played in either motivating Democrats to the polls or in just kind of convincing voters who might have otherwise leaned Republican that a Republican majority that could say, take the the holding in Dobbs and make it the legal standard across the nation um, was was a significant threat. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I and I completely agree with you that voters, you know, aren't that fixated on every element of a candidate's agenda. You know, they overall assess the quality of the candidate, and that, as Mitch McConnell said you know, quality, uh, the, uh, the quality of the candidates was an issue this time. And in that quality is the issue of election denying. I mean, it just so happens that a lot of uh, election deniers also are low quality candidates and they become particularly low quality when they draw attention to that, that aspect of their character and make the denialism or, you know, the extreme magaism their signature issue. And in those cases, the voters did it seems to me, uh, you know, uh, push back. Uh, as for abortion, yes, I am very pleasantly surprised. Uh, there were, as you said, um, there were actually five states in which there were abortion uh, initiatives, three of them pro-abortion and two of them so anti-abortion. The three pro-abortion, which were in California, Michigan, and uh, Vermont, uh, where the ballot actually enshrines a, a constitutional right to an abortion in the state, they all won. And the one in Kentucky lost, as well as, um, as, well as the uh, one in, uh, what was the, Montana. Montana, uh, Montana lost too. Now, Kentucky was a little bit weird, right? Because I think that's where um, no, or I'm sorry, Montana was a little bit weird because they wanted this intervention to prolong the life of an infant after it was born. So it wasn't strictly speaking abortion. But it's still interesting that voters wouldn't even go for that kind of, uh, in, you know, intervention in sort of the medical decisions of parents and doctors and what have you. So this was very heartening, especially at a time when inflation concerns were high that a lot of Americans prioritized, you know, fundamental issue of rights over bread and butter issues. That that's right. Uh, the backlash to Dobbs is definitely one of the things that was going on, and we also saw um, earlier this year in Kansas a an anti-abortion uh, ballot initiative failed. And uh, these are, I mean, obviously Kansas, Kentucky, Montana. These are conservative states. Um, and even in these states, uh, the the anti-abortion position is having a terrible time uh, at the ballot. Um, there's 
a lot of pro-choice Republicans out there, and that didn't used to matter. They used to be able to say, well, it doesn't matter. The court's taking that issue off the table. Um, but now it does matter. And that's certainly one of the things that's been hurting Republicans, um, particularly kind of among suburban moderates, among college-educated white women, um, those sorts of demographics that uh, uh, tend to not be otherwise very on the left, but they are pro-choice. Um, and so that's been one of the things. When it comes to like how much were voters worried about this defending democracy stuff in general versus all these other issues. Um, it was certainly the case that it was a major part of the Democrats closing message. You know, you had Biden give a, his big couple of speeches about democracy. There was a lot of talk about it. Um, but I think what's also happened is it wasn't necessarily specifically that voters were focusing in on will this candidate certify the 2024 election results or anything. It was Trump's unpopularity dragging down candidates who were seen as the Trumpiest. Um, you know, if you look at like Arizona where Blake Masters was, you know, you go to his website and it's Trump all everywhere and I'm the true MAGA candidate and all the rest of this, that flopped in purple states. Uh, same with Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania. Um, more broadly than these just being kind of like voters worrying about election administration, it's that Trump and Trumpism are still very unpopular, particularly in swing states. Um, and it's been interesting. There's been, we'll see how much this persists. We've kind of heard this before, but the degree to which Republicans are openly blaming Trump, you know, he his endorsement in the primary put a lot of these weak, bad candidates over the top and into the general election where they lost. Um, I mean, on the other hand, it's not the first time Trump has cost Republicans majorities in Congress. Um, uh, you know, he cost them the Senate majority in 2020. He lost the House in 18. And of course, he lost the White House. So we'll we'll see how much that matters, particularly as it's expected he's going to announce he's running for president again here in the next couple of weeks. Um, but I, I think that's definitely part of the dynamic here. In a year when generic Republicans should have done well, Trump Republicans dragged the whole party down. What do we make of Florida? Because Florida seems, we, we've been talking about good news so far, um, but Florida is an instance where the, arguably one of the, the most illiberal uh, I mean, most liberal governors and maybe most liberal people in the GOP, certainly on the cultural side of things, won handily and managed to flip. We flipped Miami-Dade, which is has not always been a bastion of super right-wing conservatism. And he's now being talked about as the, – the betting markets, I think, now have him as the front-runner for – the, the nomination, which I'm I'm skeptical of if Trump decides to run. But that seems like a fairly distressing result for those of us who care about not turning America into Viktor Orban's Hungary. Should we worry about that? What should we take away from the fact that he did so well in Florida? Right. Uh, you know, that's actually I tweeted this morning that this wasn't a loss for uh, authoritarian right-wing re reactionary authoritarians. It was a loss for low-character right-wing authoritarians who are, who are just undisciplined in their messaging. 
and won't even nominally play by the rules. I think DeSantis uh, is very smart. Uh, you know, he's every bit uh, an authoritarian and a statist as Trump is. I mean, he is the man, you know, who's been banning CRT from schools. He's banned cruise ships from requiring their customers to be vaccinated. And, you know, a whole slew of really heavy handed stuff. And uh, yet he won by, I think, close to 20 points. And, you know, I mean, if the, uh, the podcast is reactionary minds, and if you look at the races where they were real reactionaries, right, like sort of ideological reactionaries as opposed to kind of like just political vandals, who would those be? I mean, it would be DeSantis, it would be Vance. It would, I would even put Mike Lee in that category. My, Mike Lee used to be sort of a wonkish Republican. And then, but he was a social conservative. And then he saw his moment with Trump and kind of made a switcheroo towards pretty extreme social conservatism. And all these candidates have done really well. And so, you know, I, I mean, I am glad that... Um, you know, we are not talking about basic issues of democracy anymore. On the other hand, I am still quite concerned about the fate of liberalism going forward. I agree with that. And there's a few different things going on uh, in Florida. Um, one of them is definitely that uh, Ron DeSantis is no Herschel Walker. Um, DeSantis is a like Shika said, he's smart. He's a disciplined politician. He knows how to run a campaign. He knows how to stay on message. Um, so in that sense, even though he's very ideologically illiberal and Trumpian in a lot of ways, he's not the kind of guy that's always out there all shooting off his mouth and saying something um, that's a, a big, massive scandal. He thinks about what he says. Um, the other thing is there is an underlying trend where Florida has been trending more Republican. Um, part of that is uh, the Cuban-American community in Miami, which is certainly the dominant chunk of the vote there. And there are historical and other reasons why they tend to be more uh, Republican-leaning, and that has accelerated in a way that um, kind of bucks the trend of a lot of what's going on elsewhere in the country with Latino, other kinds of Latino voters. Um, and, and then the, the last thing I'd say about Florida is that the Democrats picked a really awful candidate. Charlie Crist was a weak choice, um, to run. He was, uh, he's a perennial loser. He was not a very popular governor. He switched parties, uh, multiple times. Um, so I, you know, I'm not keyed in enough to Florida politics to know if they had a better option or who exactly he was running against in the primary. Um, but a lot of people wrote that race off as soon as Charlie Crist became the nominee. And even though DeSantis ran up the score in a kind of a uh, little surprising way, um, I, I don't think there was ever any real doubt that he was going to win that race and win it pretty handily. Um, and so that's, that's kind of what I think happened there. And I wouldn't necessarily, all of those things, a lot of those are not generalizable, uh, to national situations. A lot of it's kind of very Florida specific things. Well, but then you also have J.D. Vance, uh, you know, who is a na national conservative at this stage and actually quite a darling of, you know, some of uh, my former national conservative friends. And uh, he 
you know, now I understand that the Republican Party dropped a lot of money in that race last minute, $30 million. Uh, yet, I mean, the, I think the difference between him and Tim Ryan was six points. And he didn't even seem to pay a political price for the fact that, I mean, he's just sort of like this uh, complete hypocrite. He used to be a Trump hater and then became a Trump lover. And uh, because he was touting a rather conservative agenda, which is some combination of like pro-working class and social conservatism, seems to have worked for him. And, and I guess Mike Lee and Evan McMullen is another weird race. Now, in that case, in Utah, Evan McMullen, um, you know, there was no Democrat running. And Democrats bowed out to let Evan McMullins get the moderate Republican vote along with the Democratic vote. He ran as an independent. And that strategy didn't seem to have worked. Now, Utah, too, is sort of a weird state, but I don't know. I mean, these are three pretty core elections. And uh, the real reactionaries, the ideological reactionaries seem to have done all you know pretty well. That's definitely right. I think looking at the Senate, Vance is the biggest win for the kind of illiberal national conservatives to get a new one of their champions in. Um, it is the case that Ohio and certainly Utah uh, are very hard states for a Republican to lose as a baseline. And so, um, but it's it's the case that uh, people thought Vance's race might be uh, winnable for Ryan and uh, Ryan did overperform a little bit. He did a little bit better than you would expect a generic Democrat to do in Ohio these days. Um, but obviously, it was not enough to to make up the difference. And uh, once Vance won, the other interesting thing about Vance I would mention is that he very narrowly eked out a plurality in the primary. Um, to that was a very hard contested primary of him versus Josh Mandel, and they were both kind of trying to out Trump each other. Um, they were both, you know, I don't know that from our perspective, we should see Vance is even necessarily worse than Mandel. Mandel was pretty awful too. Um, but that was, that was also an interesting dynamic there that, you know, if you can, if you're in a red state and you manage to, you know, you have a three-way primary and you get 38% in the primary, that's ultimately a, a pretty small chunk of the electorate that's putting somebody on the path to win the general election more likely than not. One worry I have about DeSantis's victory and Vance and so on is it seems like the Republicans set out a strategy of intentionally stirring up anti-trans, anti-gay hatred. And this was part of the – this anti-CRT thing was part of this as well of like – dude, I think over the last year or so has been one of the ugliest – strains in American politics and has caused tremendous suffering. If you know people who are gay in a lot of these states or particularly trans in these states, they are fearing for their safety, their health, sometimes their lives because harassment against them has increased a lot. It's really, really awful. And it was intentionally fanned up. And my worry, and I'm curious if the two of you think I'm perhaps overreacting is DeSantis was the, the flag bearer of this to a great extent. Vance certainly did a lot of this. We saw Greg Abbott reelected handily and he was doing some really awful anti-trans 
stuff in in Texas. Is the GOP going to take as a lesson from these particular successes that heading into the next election cycle, they should double down on that particular, like, particularly virulent scapegoating of these oppressed and vulnerable minorities? Um. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is, look, the culture wars are not over. Uh, I don't think the lesson that the GOP is going to take away from this is that uh, de-escalating the culture wars is what's going to put them, you know, on the road to political success. Uh, you know, as far it's, uh, you know, gay, you mentioned uh, gay rights and uh, uh, the uh, trans issues. Uh, immigration worked really well for DeSantis, right? I mean, he pulled this stunt where he got asylum seekers from the, on the, in Texas onto a plane and sent them to Martha's Vineyard. That played really well with the Republican crowd in uh, Florida. And uh, so I, you know, I think the lesson that Republicans are going to take away from this is that a hardline culture war, war message works. They just have to be disciplined by it and be cancel free and, you know, set aside sort of kind of like the personal egoistic drama that Trump brought to this, brought to this scene. So, I, you know, if you have a culture warrior on the right who is sort of like a principled culture warrior and he's not in business for himself, but the, you know, the, the greater cause and the restoration of tradition and traditional values and families and working class people, I, you know, I think that is a message that's going to continue to be tested and have great resonance among Republicans. I think we definitely saw that uh, these sorts of uh, culture war issues, particularly leading into the trans stuff, and to the degree that's also kind of stirred up a lot of anti-gay stuff, um, it's not a loser. Um, particularly in a lot of these states, the more liberal position on particularly trans issues, but just for lack of a better term, what they call wokeness, um, it's a it's an effective line of attack um, for Republicans and has been. Um, and when they run candidates like DeSantis, who don't have that kind of the personal baggage of a, of a, you know being kind of crazy or ill spoken or whatever, um, it can be very effective. And and talking about the kind of potential of a post-Trump GOP and looking to DeSantis as the avatar of that. Um, that's one of the things that's been very uh, concerning to me. I mean, Trump, for everything awful about him, um, it was genuinely true that one of his uh, silver lining features is that he kind of explicitly rejected the Bush-era anti-gay stuff. Um, you know, they made a big deal of having Peter Thiel speak at the RNC. It was pretty plain that Trump personally does not much care about these issues. He wasn't interested in fighting against gay marriage and that sort of thing. And so it seemed like that stuff had been put to rest for a few years. And now DeSantis is very much bringing it back um, in a way that's that's concerning for how much this is going to be a feature of Republican politics uh, in the years to come. And, you know, let me just also point out, I mean, for for the conservative grassroots, you know, there are two issues that have ignited the culture wars. One was Roe v. Wade, which launched the culture wars. 
And then what kept it going was really, uh, you know, the Oberjerfell ruling. I mean, I have talked to so many of them and they are still seething about that. And partly it's just, you know, they, you know, they're cultural conservatives, but partly I think they are genuinely afraid, you know, the baking cakes for gay thing really resonates with them. They don't merely see it as sort of, you know, a, sort of a cultural lifestyle issue for gays. They see it as a personal life, lifestyle issue for themselves where they may not be allowed to continue, you know, to exercise their religion in the way they prefer. And that's hugely mobilizing for the right. And I think, you know, DeSantis is going to put together these three issues. It will be anti-gay, anti-abortion and anti-immigration. And he'll do it in a coherent, you know, disciplined fashion. And I think, you know, so this, this is by no means over from the standpoint of liberalism. What does this all mean for Trump? You know, as I said at the beginning, the you know, the betting markets and a lot of the, the punditry on Twitter are talking as if what happened last night moved DeSantis into the front runner. Uh, Trump did seem to, there's a lot of Republicans who have been saying yet again that he seems to be a an anchor weighing them down, that the races that he intervened in didn't go their way, that they wish he would just go away and stop hurting their their turnout and their vote ratios and so on. Is he, how much does he still control the party after the kind of shellacking that the most Trumpist candidates seem to get last night? I think this is something that uh, appeals more to pundits that is grounded in reality. I have always been, and I still am, pretty bearish on the idea that DeSantis could beat Trump for the 2024 nomination. Um, it's true that Trump's standing has has clearly been hurt. There's a lot of Republicans who are mad at him for the reasons, particularly uh, Republican leadership positions. Uh, at the same time, we've we've heard this all before. This is not the first time Trump has done this. Trump cost them the Senate in 2020. Trump lost them the House in 2018. Trump lost the White House. Um, and then there was January 6th. And every time after all this, we've we've heard this noise about how Republican leaders, um, you know, the Mitch McConnells and Kevin McCarthy's and the kind of pundit class are frustrated with him, um, but he still has that base of support of fifty to sixty percent at least of Republican primary voters, and that's that's not beatable. Um, as long as he doesn't lose that, you know, it, that that's still a lot of Republicans out there who do want to move on past Trump, who do want an alternative. Um, but when you're looking ahead to the 2024 primary, uh, Trump would still have to lose a lot of ground in ways that he hasn't for any of the past examples of similar outrages and hurting the GOP. Um, so I still think Trump is far and away the likeliest uh, 2024 nominee. Yeah, I'm not so sure about that. Actually, Michael, uh, what's his name? Mike Cernovich, this alt-right uh, uh, broadcaster, he tw he tweeted today that, uh, you know, both Trump and Trump-endorsed candidates are just finished going forward. 
And, you know, you, I don't know, you can almost like feel it in the air that tr Trump, who was riding high, has been deflated now. I ran this piece at the Unpopulous today by Robert uh, Trzinski, uh, you know, where uh, he makes, you know, he's taking the view that democracy was on the ballot and democracy won. It's a great piece. But one of the points that he makes is that, you know, in politics, nothing succeeds like success and nothing fails like failure. And so to the extent that Trump was winning and seemed to be an effective kingmaker in the Republican Party, I think, you know, Republicans were willing to put up with him. I think going forward, you are going to see uh, him just being ignored and sidelined in the party. I don't think anybody will take him on head to head. I think they will just, he'll just be a marginalized figure. I think that's right, that he's definitely in a weaker position now, and it hurt him. And uh, there's there's more open frustration with Trump coming from more voices that would not have been saying that previously, people like Cernovich. Um, it's just, it, we, it will be hard to see over the next few weeks, we'll see the polls. Uh, it's expected Trump is going to announce. Um, we'll see if DeSantis even runs against him, which is something that's been up in the air. And there's been some discussion about whether he is or not. Um, if DeSantis doesn't run, it's very hard to see anybody else who's positioned in a way that they could actually stop Trump from getting the nomination. Um, but that it, it could be in a weird position where even if Trump wins his own race in the primary, uh, he is a more marginalized figure and is playing less of a kingmaker role in these primaries that the Republican down ticket feels less tied to him and less obligated to kowtow to him. Um, and I think that's a, that's a healthy development, even if we do get into the position where he's the nominee again, um, that there will be more distance between him and a lot of down ticket Republicans. Yeah, no, I, I, you know, I agree with that. And, uh, you know, with, tr I guess I would actually not be unhappy if Trump runs one more time and loses decisively, because I think Republicans still need to get this out of their system. I don't think they get the message after just one or two election losses. I think they need to be, you know, repeatedly shellacked in the elections for them to really understand that kind of like a Trump-like demagogic strongman figure is uh, not a winning ticket. Um, my fear is that unless that happens, you're going to have more copycats who are going to try and emulate his style, but in a different kind of way, just testing different flavors of that formula. And so, you know, if he were to run again and be decisively refuted, I think that would be a good thing. And on, and the other thing is, I mean, I'm not sure that um, if DeSantis is the nominee, that's in some ways, you know, on one hand, he'll play by the electoral rules and he will not, you know, be an election denier or call an insurrection. On the other hand, I think he may be a little more effective in getting his uh, reactionary agenda through. And I really do worry about that. That's my big worry about him is I don't think he's any, he's, he certainly is le no more liberal than Trump and is, has proven that he's more effective at actually governing and getting done what he wants to get done. But Andy, you mentioned Trump is not a kingmaker. And that made me think of one of the interesting things that, and kind of more minor things that came out of last night was during the primaries, there was a lot of fretting about Democratic 
money groups spending money promoting basically the nuttiest candidates on the right with the strategy that if we can get the nuttiest people to win the primary, they'll be easier to defeat in the actual election. And there was a whole lot of worry among political commentators and analysts about this strategy because it was basically a version of the strategy they used in 2016 with Trump himself was we want to get him to be the nominee because he's nuts and he's unfit and he'll be we can we can clean his clock in the general election and obviously that didn't it didn't play out that way to the you know to catastrophic effects for the country but I believe that in that it worked every time this time around, that every time there was a candidate, a crazy MAGA candidate who was supported by Democratic money, they ended up losing in the actual election. What should we make of that both as a sign of where things might go two years from now, but also as an assessment of this strategy and the, I guess, the relative wisdom of trying it again next time around. That's right. We did see um, one example that was uh, kind of emblematic of the whole thing was in Peter Meyer's seat, what used to be Justin Amash's seat in Michigan, uh, Grand Rapids in the Michigan's third district. And uh, Democrats did exactly this. Um, in that case, it's I think the evidence is pretty clear. They actually did successfully put uh, the crazy Trumpy uh, re Republican over the line in a closely fought primary, and then uh, and then the Democrats won that seat uh, in the general election. Um, it, there's a degree to which I think it's right to criticize them as this is a civically unvirtuous thing to do, um, but political parties are cynical self-interested machines that want to win and it's it's very hard to tell a party they shouldn't do this i also wouldn't overstate the degree to which it worked in that I, i'm not sure how many of these for to begin with there wasn't a ton of these races there was there was maybe a dozen or so of these high profile incidents nationwide a lot of these are races the democrats would have won anyway in the general election a lot of them it's dubious if they actually made the difference in these primary elections um so i think uh you know myers district is probably the strongest case of an example where it did make the outcome where meyer uh, lost the primary because of this interference and he uh, would have had a much better shot at holding the seat in the general election um, but there's some democrats uh, like jamie raskin who've come back and kind of said like yes it's true but uh that that somebody like meyer uh, was was obviously not an election denier. He'd voted to impeach Trump, et cetera. Um, but he still would have been a vote for Kevin McCarthy to be Speaker of the House. Um, and in, in a position where the the House GOP as a whole is still pretty bad, a majority of them did vote to overturn the last election, um, even if a substantial minority didn't. It's, it's like, well, which is that... It's a, it's a difficult question, and it's a genuinely... Um, unclear thing like is it that more important for the republicans as a whole to lose even if that means their marginal seats are the relatively good republicans who are losing 
Um, so I, I wish they hadn't done it. I'm a fan of Peter Meyer. I wish he was sticking around. Um, some of these others, uh, similar story. Um, but at the end of the day, I think if this, this probably only affected a couple of house seats, I don't look at any of the Senate races or any of the governor races and think that the Democrats doing this kind of thing was decisive, um, just because the margins in the primary and then the margins in the general election from the partisan baseline, uh, were not close enough that I think it actually made the difference. So I, uh, you know, uh... I'm kind of heart sick that Democrats used uh, a strategy like this. Um, you know, they can get away with it a few times, but if this becomes the their modus operandi, I think they will be rightly viewed with the same disgust by voters that they, you know, that uh, the Republicans are viewed right now. And then we'll really be screwed, right? We have two really terrible, immoral, you know, and in their own way, illiberal parties. And I also think, I mean, I'm not a moralist as such, you know, politics is a dirty game. But I think if you're going to play such dirty tactics, they at least ought to be your last resort. And I'm not sure they needed to play this in Michigan, for instance. You know, this is the first time that the Democrats have actually flipped the House from Republicans in 40 years. So even though I like Peter Myers, just like uh, Andy, I think they could have won this race without floating a man like John Gibbs. So they didn't have to sully by themselves by such tactics. And I mean, and they, you know, and in this election, they have got such bad... Uh, uh, you know, press for this, and rightly so, even though it wasn't a strategy that was generally used, and it was used in only a handful of cases. But still, so I really wish they wouldn't do this. I think in the long run, it backfires against them, and it backfires against the country. And so don't do it, guys, or do it really, really, really minimally. I do think also one important point you hit on, Aaron, which is, uh, yeah, it didn't it didn't blow up in their face this time, um, but you know, okay, maybe you got a couple of house seats this time, but the same strategy also made Trump president. Um, it did blow up in their face in 2016, and so it is a very dangerous thing, particularly if we're looking forward to like future presidential primaries. Um, I think it's it's absolutely the case, and we have the internal discussions in the the Hillary campaign where they talked about how they were doing this, and the Democratic leaning media did this uh, in 2015 and 2016, where you know, let's just spend all the time. Talking about Trump, uh, talking up Trump, um, boosting him to this kind of status as the highest profile presumed Republican candidate. And I don't know if it ultimately made the difference in terms of Trump winning the primary, but it certainly didn't help. And then obviously, you know, we know, do we know what happened in November uh, of that year? So, uh, like, I, I, when we look at the track record of this thing, uh, that, that it helped produce Trump is a much bigger demerit against it than maybe it flipped a couple of House seats this time. So then looking forward to 2024, obviously liberalism is still under significant threat for a lot of the reasons that we have talked about over the last 40 or so minutes. How big are our worries and what can we be doing to, as, as three people who are committed to defending liberalism, what can we be doing to 
I guess, get ready for 2024. And I'll start with you, Andy, on specifically the the election issues, because as you said, a lot of election deniers lost. Um, but then you mentioned the Nevada Secretary of State. Like, what do the threats now look like to the in a peaceful and fair counting of votes and transfer of power? Well, one good thing uh, that we have seen, you know, if you're looking for a good defending liberal democracy bipartisan moment, we do still have that happening, and it's with the Electoral Count Act reform, uh, which is, you know, fingers crossed from everything we hear, looking very good to pass uh, here in the lame duck session with strong bipartisan majorities. Mitch McConnell uh, is supporting it. Uh, I came out of the Senate Rules Committee on a 14 to 1 vote. Ted Cruz was the only Republican who voted against it in committee. Um, and this legislation will do a lot of nuts and bolts technical things to shore up what happened uh, in 2020 and what was tried in 2020, including this scenario of the rogue officials at the state level trying to do something crazy and and not certifying the presidential electors or something like that. Um, it creates better judicial mechanisms to handle those things. It makes it harder for Congress to do something crazy in terms of rejecting electoral votes. Um, so that will, I think, shore things up in terms of the not the broader political problem of having so many candidates who are willing to endorse this sort of overturning election stuff, um, but the the procedure and the laws and the constitutional architecture will be strengthened. Um, the other thing on the kind of election reform front that is good, I mean, we talked about a little bit about how Democrats are not uh, the, the perfect alternative, and certainly they're not always uh, shying away from illiberalism themselves in a lot of ways. Um, I mean, one way I've talked about it is that the, the GOP has gotten worse faster, but that both parties, I think, are trending in a more illiberal direction um, in ways that are very problematic. There is still a lot of left populist illiberal tendencies. Um, and so when I look long-term, uh, this kind of runaway illiberalizing polarization, I think electoral reform is key to that, getting things like ranked choice, getting things like proportional representation. And so on that front, uh, it, it's looking very good. Um, Nevada had a ballot initiative on to amend their state constitution to adopt basically the same system as Alaska is now using, the top four ranked choice. It's actually top five in Nevada. Um and that is passed. It has to pass again in 2024 because it's a state constitutional amendment that has to go up twice. But it looks like it passed this time. So that was a big win. Um, Portland, uh, Oregon, it has, did something very interesting that's not getting a lot of attention. They actually adopted a system of proportional representation, uh, which no city in the U.S. has done since 1947. Um, and so they are going to – I think this has a lot of benefit potentially – when you look at state legislatures and maybe even ultimately Congress one day of having systems of multi-member districts with proportional representation. And what that does is you get the least polarized, more moderate voters represented in a way they're currently not. You get those rural, moderate Democrats in rural areas. You get those socially liberal Republicans who live in the cities who don't currently get any seat at the table because they're not a majority within a district. But if you get this kind of um, proportional representation, it does increase 
uh, the number of people who have somebody they voted for who's actually in office. It, it, it builds that buy-in that's necessary for a democratic system and it's very healthy. Um, so I'm very excited about that. And that's one of the main things I'm going to be working on over the next few years is going into the state level, trying to build the coalitions and craft these plans for electoral reform that can get implemented and hopefully long-term get us out of this kind of two-party uh, death spiral. Right. I mean, you know, much as I am very pleased about today's results, right, I, the last six years or four years have been a huge stress test for our test system, and it, it has really sort of exposed a lot of the weak points in our, in our electoral process, in our parliamentary process. And one of the good things to come out of it, as Andy was saying, were all this discussion about reforming the system and co-proofing it in a sense, right? And the Electoral Count Act, I think, is on a good track. And I think Andy is pretty optimistic uh, that the reforms will pass. But, you know, uh, things like proportional representation and ranked choice voting have only been tried in a handful of states. And they really need to gain steam and momentum. And my fear is that you know, after this election with the extreme sort of uh, election denying candidates now quelled or the election questioning candidates quelled that, you know, this momentum, we may lose some of this momentum. I mean, that's on the electoral reform front. And then on the intellectual front, you know, the last six years, what Trump did was create a whole lot of space for some really right-wing ideas to emerge, right? And they and we are at a stage where they've been workshopping some pretty specific things that they want to do, whether it is the integralists or whether they are the national conservatives or whether they are the sort of the big tech red-pilled Peter Thiel type, you know, billionaires. They have an agenda. They have got a very different agenda from pre, you know, from pre-Trump. And again, I think this election may give us this false sense of comfort that you know, this is all kind of over now and we may lose some of the momentum that we have to tackle and counter these ideologies and therefore leaving them, you know, unaddressed to one again, you know, to keep, keep growing and reasserting themselves. Thank you for listening to Reactionary Minds, a project of the unpopulist. If you want to learn more about the rise of a liberalism and the need to defend a free society, check out theunpopulist.substack.com.